The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. In his book, White Angel, John McLaughlin Gray describes Vancouver of the 1920s as a dirty, smelly, corrupt hellhole. Anyone who passes through the downtown east side of the city today might wonder if he was actually referring to 2020. When former Mayor Gregor Robertson left office, the Vancouver Sun reported tent city organizers said they savor Gregor's resignation and the humiliating end of Vision Vancouver. It was quite a parting gift to Robertson, who was first elected in 2008 on the promise to end homelessness. When Robertson left office, there were 2,181 homeless people in Vancouver. Today it's difficult to know the exact number because for the second year in a row, the city of Vancouver canceled its homeless count. No matter the number, the situation is worse. As Douglas Todd, the senior Vancouver Sun journalist, wrote in a recent opinion piece, it's impossible to find someone who doesn't feel compassion for the residents of Vancouver's downtown east side. That said, the situation gets worse year over year. Todd asks, why has so much philanthropy and community activism and arguably billions of dollars of government and charitable money had such a minimal effect? Why does compassion appear to be failing? I invited Douglas Todd to join me for a conversation that matters about how we got to now on the downtown east side and how do we even begin to try and figure out where to go. Douglas, welcome. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. You know, I was really taken back when I read your column of about 10 days ago because you point out, like, I mean, you have had a relationship with the downtown east side for decades. Yeah. And you find yourself going, okay, where are we going wrong? Yep. What, what did you learn? <laughs> yeah, I worked there as a young person for a summer on some federal grants and, you know, made a bit of a difference through the United Church, down, uh, First United Church. Yeah. The neighborhood's just five blocks away from here, right. as you're well aware. Um, and it has gotten worse. Everybody agrees with that. Um, and so I wanted to explore why is that. And, you know, you talk to people about downtown, he's like, Gregor Robertson gives it a damn, right? He, he's compassionate. So do those tent activists. Yep. They care. Everybody cares. But one of the reasons I, we concluded has gotten worse is that these, is partly the digital age, the social media age, where all these activists, there's hundreds of groups down there. Yeah. Charities, churches, um, food banks, you know, Activ housing activists, uh, housing associations, they're doing some good. Mm -hmm. Like some people are getting help, but everybody knows it's getting worse down there. Just even visually, the tent cities are photographers' dreams, right? They look like hell. And hellish things are going on in them. Drug dealing, fires, you know, sexual assaults, and criminals are camping out in those tents. But anyways, I think Kind of what's new and making it even worse, well, the drugs and all that stuff, but is this competition amongst the activist groups for attention. They're, they're getting nastier and more, making more controversial statements all the time on social media, in the media, the regular media, to get attention and to get grants. And you've got these people fighting against each other, accusing anybody who disagrees with them on ideological grounds of the worst things. So... I think it's become a bit of a battle for attention and money that's 
dividing people even more. So, and um, you know, David Eby is showing quite a bit of courage, actually taking on a lot of these activists by not being a pure libertarian. Um, and we'll see how that goes. It'll be imperfect, but I think something's going to finally happen. Yeah, I find it uh, absolutely um, a fascinating and horrible situation. Um, it's and it's hard to feel justified that I have anything that it's of value to contribute because I'm not in that space. Um, and so, how do we find that place that can help people to make? different choices or give, put them into appropriate environments that allow them to move away from what's happening there. You know, I was listening to Julian Summers the other day and he said, you know, the housing models that we're creating are a big part of the problem. Really? Yeah. He's an interesting guy, Julian Summers. Yeah. You know, he's, he's taken on the ideologues and he's lost some grants and stuff because of his positions. He's almost getting canceled. Yeah, but he's one of the voices of reason down there, as far as I'm concerned, on you know providing full treatment to people, and the um, it's expensive, but people need treatment, and they sometimes there shouldn't, as David Eby's starting to say, the attorney, um, pre premier. premier now, yeah, yeah, he's saying no, sometimes treatment's got to be almost compulsory, like it is in places like Portugal and things like that. At the same time, though, the province is now getting set to make the possession of a number of different uh, drugs a misdemeanor. Um, and so what are we doing? Are we saying we give up? Um, does it feel like that? I think that's another thing that's gone wrong in the last 10 or 20 years is the libertarians, for lack of a better word, the people who are in charge. And they, everything to them is about choice. And, they think the only way to not stigmatize a drug user is to allow them to do virtually whatever they want while supplying safe drugs, which most don't use and don't find strong enough or get and swap from stronger drugs that are fentanyl filled and all that. Um, but I think it has been part, and I think um, Vancouver Council, Kennedy Stewart, the former mayor, I think he fell into that libertarian trap where it's all about choice. Um, to give somebody dignity, but how much dignity do you have when you're, well, mentally ill and taking illicit drugs that are making you crazy? And as E.B. says, you know, some of these people are showing up twice a day over overdoses Yeah. in the hospitals. Or having... There's not much uh, dignity in that. No, or being attended to by uh, uh, ambulance paramedics right. uh, more than once in a day. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty tough. I got to you know, hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So let's go back to the 1980s yeah. <laughs> when there was this move, and it wasn't just in British Columbia, it was a move throughout much of uh, North America and I think even Europe to say, oh, if we have institutions uh, for people who have you know, mental health challenges, it's inhumane. We need to shut down those institutions. Yeah. Um, and I remember having former Vancouver Police Chief Jim Chu in once, and he said, you know, it was well-intentioned. The problem is, yeah. you'd, said, you'd say to somebody who has been in Riverview for 20 years and had their lives worked out and were living a, you know, a healthy, protected yeah. uh, life, um, you know, we're going to send you back home to Fort St. John where you're from. 
uh, and they were, why would I go there? Um, well, that's where you're from, and we're going to have the services there so that you can be back in your community. Yeah. Problem is, the services may or may not have been there. They couldn't uh, keep up. The, the, somebody goes off their uh, medication, yeah. and then they start to have some challenges, and which make them more difficult to deal with. Yeah. And Jim said, you know, they start working their way through the cracks in the system, and where do they wind up? They wind up ultimately in the downtown east side. Yep. And he said, who's the first person waiting for them? Your friendly neighborhood drug dealer. Yep, exactly. To make you feel better. Mm -hmm. And so then you create a challenge for that individual. And so what choice do they ha now have? There isn't yep. a system or a place for them to go to. Yep. Well, I don't, I don't think you realize this, but uh, when you invited me here, but uh, I have a personal story about that, and that is my father was schizophrenic and he was in Riverview for 15 years mm -hmm. and then he was would get out from time to time to go to live with his parents for a week or two or something like that and then eventually he was um, put into a boarding house run by the government in Kitsilano which is sort of where he's from and it was pretty good yeah <laughs> you know he just had this very simple life with some people taking care of him some meals and maybe eight people in the Pretty nice house, very basic, but I thought, and he'd go to the library and wear nice clothes, and that was his life. Yeah. <laughs> Read McLean's magazine. But now, I actually think I'd better do a story about it. I'm afraid that, he died in 1999. I'm afraid that somebody like him, who was a dignified, extremely withdrawn person, wasn't acting out or anything. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid he would end up in the frickin' streets of downtown Eastside, which would be unbelievable yeah so I think the down the downsizing and shutting of Riverview was a big problem I've been I was out there as a kid it was not great in some ways but it was okay unless and they're safe right mm-hmm um, yeah so and food maybe, clothing shelter yeah a community of people yeah. um, not being mistreated but the, being treated yeah um, there was nice grounds uh, it was the hills and grass my brother reminded me that we'd go to balcony down there on Sunday yeah. visits down the grass so you know when Evie talks about reviving um, some version of a Riverview I think it just makes that much sense it'd be interesting to, to compare the cost of that, right? People mm -hmm. are all afraid about the cost of institution, which, you know, justifiably, but we know there's big cost to the cops and the paramedics showing up two or three times a day for the same person. Mm -hmm. So when you take a look at uh, what has happened in the, in the past couple of years, a, a, a movement that has come out of the United States about uh, defund the police and get them out of there, yeah. um, when you take a look at the situation on the downtown east side, is that a wise move? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, Kennedy Stewart and his council got caught up in during COVID in the um, George Floyd yeah. murder and how that became this gigantic international story, freaked everybody out and started this defund the police um, movement, which has completely been turned, you know, um, collapsed. Mm -hmm. The ones who used to support it, the Democrats in the U.S., are saying, oh, no, we weren't really into it. We need more police because they're losing elections big time. And it's why, sure, why Kennedy Stewart and his crew lost the election is that they were seen as defunding the police, which they actually tried. I mean, yeah. it was only a 10% or something. But, um, you know, Ken Sim was pretty smart to emphasize that with the 
the 100 new police officer thing. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. What the system needs, and if you talk to the Vancouver police, they will tell you this. They say it's not uh, you know, mental health or community uh, health care workers or us. He says it's not an either or. It has to be together. And so they have no trouble saying, absolutely, we need to have more of those resources. The problem is that those resources start to slip away. And the police, no matter what, become the first responders. They have no choice. There's a 911 call. They have to attend. Um, right. And so uh, it puts them in a very difficult position. Yeah. Publicly, they're being shunned uh, for doing their job. Yeah. And, uh, and yet they still have to respond. Yeah. And I, I'd love to see some polling, actually, on what do Metro Vancouver residents think about the police? Do you trust them or are they, do you think they're on their side or are they kind of the enemy who are dangerous because they carry guns and they yeah. go around their authority? I bet you yeah, the polls would be pretty strong pro-police. But there's these 10 or 20% of activists and whatever who hate authority and hate coercion, allegedly they hate coercion, who just freak out about the police and give them a bad rep and it's young people partly like I'm sorry I feel kind of old-fashioned on this I sort of think okay <laughs> I'm glad you're here yeah occasionally I see the police take down somebody in the city or, and I think I go up and say thanks for doing your job <laughs> okay right yeah so one of the things that I think is very interesting is we watch what happens out of the United States and the way in which policing is conducted in the U.S. is different than here. Yeah. And I think that most Canadians don't realize that police in, in Canada operate under the principles of Sir Robert Peel, which were, which were, no, no, you don't police the community, you police with the community. You're trying to create uh, environments, relationships, uh, and, and you know, interactions that help people make good choices, um, hopefully to be law-abiding citizens. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't know what came out of Sir Robert Peel's <laughs> approach, but um, I've talked to, who's his name out of SFU, who's researches police stuff. And the, the police in Canada are completely different. They're way more regulated. They're trained more um, better and more um, consistently. Right. Whereas the States, it's just a grab bag of, you know, could be, an, could be anybody. Yeah. We, we have professional police uh, who have university degrees who go through enormous amounts of training. They get paid a livable wage. Yeah. I was at a function where I was um, uh, talking to somebody who had been a uh, police support service person, had been down in the southern U.S. and doing a ride along with, uh, on a patrol with a police officer there. And the guy says, hang on a second, I just got to stop in at this pizza shop. And they went in, uh, guy gets the pizza, and then he drives it to somebody's house to deliver it because he was supplementing his income doing pizza delivery while on duty. And, he, and, and what this fellow said, he says, there's such a dramatic difference between the kind of person we get as a police officer in Canada versus especially in many of these smaller jurisdictions in the United States. Yeah. So if we appreciate the fact that the police have to play a role, like they cannot. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone out on a ride along with them when they're doing, uh, 
you know, the community service work. I think it's called CAR 54. Yeah. They go out with a community uh, healthcare worker to help people stay on their medication routine. Yeah. Well, a healthcare worker won't go there unless they're escorted by the police. Yeah, right. And you, and you go there with them and you understand why. Yeah, exactly. Anything could happen. Yeah. People get triggered by whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also um, studies showing way less violence by police in Canada compared to the U.S. and way less violence towards police in Canada. Mm -hmm. So it is a completely different ballgame. You know, you know, the police in the United States, they are told they have to take their gun home and be available at any one time. And he creates this kind of uh, hyper-vigilance, I think. Yeah. Whereas here, the cops can't take their gun home, most of them. So let's come back to our main point here, which is how do we move forward? Uh, we've seen... Uh, and as you pointed out, people are well-intentioned. Yeah. I have compassion for the people uh, who are walking by my back door all the time. And there was a time when I used to like engage with a lot of people. I'd help them out. I'd give them some clothing and food and get to know some of these people. Yeah. After they broke in here uh, and I was here, uh, my uh, level of uh, sympathy and compassion plummeted. Yeah. And yeah. so if, if you start losing somebody like me who has sympathy, where do we go? Yeah, well, that compassion fatigue, right? So yeah. You have so many appeals for help, and then you add that extra element if you get your car broken into, which just happened to me a month ago down a block away, right? Yeah. Um, and they took nothing. There was nothing in it. I mean, yeah. you know, they took something silly. But, um, yeah, compassion fatigue is a big deal, right? We, uh, I, like, uh, the media covers... <laughs> The downtown east side, it's, it's only six to 8,000 people, right? Yeah. If you include Chinatown or something. And I can't believe how many stories get written about it. And I, to be honest, I don't think readers are that interested. I think they've heard it so much, they're kind of a little bit of despair. Um, but the media is obsessed about it in terms of uh, uh, showing their compassion, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of the public's getting burned out. Um, there's so many other causes. I talked to this ethicist, right? And he said, yeah, he's, he cares about the downtown east side, but he also cares about the Myanmar refugees, and he's putting some money into that, right? There's right. so many causes that are pretty valid, so why? I think, the I think the line in your article that really caught me was, and I think you were uh, quoting him, yeah. it's a wicked problem. Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly high concept yeah. thing by these sociologists there's this term wicked problem in the downtown east side does represent that where um, it's intractable um, there is no simple solution because it's multifaceted um, as, as going to last forever and what's interesting there's no testable solution so that's right. interesting eh? so you yeah. can't do one thing and say hmm. oh this <laughs> Yeah, that worked. Uh, we've got good data on it, and it really worked because there's so many other things that are uh, messing things up. So, yeah, it's a <laughs> wicked problem. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Well, I mean, we talk about the area that's not too far from here. <clears throat> I've watched as there have been different businesses that have tried to move in, uh, open up. They don't last very long. Is that right, eh? They shut them down. Around the corner from here, there was a 7-Eleven. 
a 7-Eleven, and they shut it down. Is that right, eh? Yeah. Just how, how close just, to the DTS? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, that's the other issue. It is getting gentrified, right? Yeah. There's some pretty classy restaurants down there. And the, the condos are getting closer all the time. And so there is this um, um, coming together of poor and addicted people mm-hmm. with pretty well-off people. Yeah. And that's... Uh, leading to more attacks, and these stranger attacks are pretty, they're a big deal in the city, right? Just yeah. random attacks. They yeah. last 15 seconds, and there's no purpose for them other than do some damage to an innocent person. Yeah, I, I've, I've encountered it myself Have you? a couple of times. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to have your wits about you. Yeah, you really do. I bet. Um, you know, as uh, Inspector Colleen Yee of the Vancouver Police Department uh, tells women who go through this Women's Personal Protection Program, she says the number one thing that you have to do to be able to uh, make sure that you stay as safe as possible is have a high level of situational awareness. You can't go walking down the street with your face buried in your phone and earbuds and hope that you're just going to be safe, saying, well, I should be safe. The reality now is... No, you have to take some real responsibility to avoid danger as much as possible. That's interesting because, you know, over the years, the decades, um, downtown Eastside has been a rough place, or what everything that <laughs> John McLaughlin Gray said. Yeah. But you could always feel like you could walk through it and you'd be safe. Right. And now even that's changing. Yeah. It's, so that's a credit to Vancouver that it has been safe so long compared to a U.S poor, really poor urban yeah. area where you, you just assume you're going to get mugged. Yeah. Whereas you didn't in the downtown east side. And in some ways, it's still not that bad, which is amazing. But you're right. The, the mood on the street has changed. I ride my bike a fair bit. And from here, I'll go down over to Maine and across the tracks along the waterfront and out to uh, Stanley Park. Cool. Well, to do that, I got to go through the downtown east side to get there. Yeah. And I sort of calculate my movement to never stop moving on my bike because yeah. I don't want to have to start from zero if somebody comes at me. Yeah. Um, so I'm slowly approaching a red light. Uh, as soon as it turns green, I'm going. Yeah. Um, why? Because I'm, it's not comfortable there any longer. And it's not like I'm a small guy. Yeah. I, you know, I can feel the energy. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're, I mean, I'm going to ask you, like, okay. um, have you seen st- attacks or cycling through there um no i have not i haven't directly witnessed that but my partner the other day i dropped her off to go to an appointment thinking i'm driving here to get you safe well from the time that out of the car to the corner of the street all of a sudden there's somebody coming after i have to step out and intervene and what was the person going after for like just Probably money or, uh, you know, maybe wanting to steal her backpack or whatever. But there was intent there. And uh, she turns, starts coming towards me. I'm out of the car and it's like, okay, you got to back off. And the guy then backed off. But he was was coming for her. Just like that. Yeah. Even, you know, I don't go down there too often. No, that wasn't even there. That was up at Davy and Burrard. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that whole police thing about (laughs) random stranger assaults happening is true. People are on edge. (laughs) <laughs> so I think we solved nothing here, uh, which is the hard part, isn't it? Because yeah. as you say, there are no testable solutions. Yeah. And, and that's uh, disheartening in a way. It is. <laughs> E.B.'s going to give it a try, and he's finally taken on the 
people who emphasize choice over everything. Yeah. I think a little coercion yeah. is going to be necessary. I'm not a fan of coercion, but no. I think it's going to be necessary. And I mean, this if David Eby does follow through, I mean, we will have something to look at in terms of um, data. But, you know, still, we're the warmest place in Canada, so people like to come here. And therein lies the problem. I talked to uh, uh, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer the other day. He says, nobody's going across Canada to sleep on the streets of Toronto in the winter. Yeah. So they come here. I know. And we do need more federal support for this. Yeah. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Vancouver gets stuck with this massive issue. Wicked problem. It's a wicked problem. <laughs> Thanks for coming and having this conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot.